right, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to uh, John 12 this morning. We are in John 12, uh, chapter 20. I see many of you getting out your many uh, your cellular mobile. Uh, if you've got a tablet, uh, I like a uh, good old-fashioned Bible uh, with paper, uh, but we do want to encourage you to bring your Bibles each and every week. Um, several months ago, back in January, we started going through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, we're reading uh, everything, uh, the, the, the chapters that make us feel good, uh, but uh, also the chapters and verses that make us a little bit uncomfortable, and the ones that really, really challenge us. And so here we are in John 12 this morning, um, and uh, we're just to kind of give you some context. It is the end of Jesus' life. We uh, last week or the week before, we looked at Palm Sunday, and that just kind of frames it up for you. There are just a few days, a few hours of Jesus' uh, life on this earth uh, before he gets uh, uh, arrested and taken to the cross. And so that's kind of where we're at. And so this morning, we're going to pick it up where we left off last week, John 12, verse 20. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day for an opportunity to worship you, for a time, God, to gather as your people, to read your word, to sing praises to you, God, and to receive the gift of uh, the sacrament of Holy Communion this morning. So, Lord, as we um, prepare to open your word, make us attentive, make us open, uh, make us, God, uh, vessels to, to hear, to receive, and to respond. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the midst of the Civil War, the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln was very discouraged. He was frustrated. Things weren't going how he thought they were going to go. And he was discouraged and frustrated, and he needed some encouragement. So on a particular Sunday, the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, went to church to worship God and to seek some inspiration for his own life and his leadership as the President of our nation. And after the service, one of uh, Lincoln's aides came up to him and said, Mr. President, did you enjoy the sermon today? And Lincoln paused and said, well, it was clear. The theology seemed to align with the Bible. The pastor, the preacher, he seemed to have good intentions. It was logical. It was reasonable. The aide said or asked, so you did enjoy the sermon this morning, Mr. President. He said, I think he failed. While everything he spoke of was truthful and accurate, and even with good intentions, the preacher this morning did not ask us to respond to do anything great. There was no challenge in the message. And so this morning, as you've come to worship you think about your own life, maybe you've come discouraged, frustrated, stuff going on in your life. I want you to lean in to the text. 
Lean into God's word. Lean in to the very words of Jesus Christ. And I want you to ask yourself, how are you going to apply Jesus' words from your li- from this li- for, to your life from this text? When you go out from this place, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to be challenged to live in a way that God does something great in and through your life. And so this morning, as we look at John 12, I think that's the the challenge for all of us. What are you going to do to live your life in a way that is great and honoring and does something extraordinary for this community and for this world? John 12, beginning with verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. This, of course, is the festival, the the Passover festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And here we get, we, we get to this point in Jesus' life and in his ministry. Over and over and over, whenever Jesus does a miracle, whenever he has an extraordinary teaching, people say to him, you are the Messiah. You are God. Come to earth. The Son of Man. And Jesus says, shh, quiet. Don't tell anyone. My hour has not yet come. Over and over and over, Even at the the, uh, wedding of Cana, when Mary, his mother, says, Jesus, come on, do something. You're the Son of Man. He's like, don't tell anyone. My hour has not yet come. Over and over, we read about this in the Gospels. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then we get to the text today. In verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come. So we ask ourselves, the hour has come for what? What's going on, Jesus? He says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what Jesus, of course, is talking about is going to the cross. When we hear that, you know, that Jesus is going to the cross, we think to ourselves, what does that have to do with Jesus being glorified? Because when, when we think of someone dying, we don't think that that's a wonderful thing. We think that's a pretty horrible thing. We, we were sad. We think that's a, even a tragic thing. But Jesus says, I am going to be glorified. And what he is speaking about is his death on the cross. And so what Jesus invites us to consider this morning is, are these words. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What Jesus is talking about is how we live in the world, how we go about our day in and our day out. 
And what Jesus is saying is he is calling us to is to reject the values of this world, the values of this life. Of course, he's talking about all of us who are self-serving, self-focused, self-motivated. We make life all about us. And he says, folks, that is not what life is about if you want to be my disciple. And he invites us to die to ourselves, to surrender to ourselves. The Apostle Paul actually kind of lays out this, this picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He writes this in, in Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind is governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And so Paul is making it very clear. There there are two different ways to live our lives. Self-motivated, self-governed, self-directed, or living for God. Surrendering to ourself, surrendering to our motivation, surrendering to ourselves. And what he tells us is that when we live our lives for ourselves on this earth, we can and, mu- and will probably experience temporary satisfaction. But it will be short term. And in the end, we will die. But Jesus tells us that when we surrender our lives to him, we will live forever. That is long term. And as we go through life, and it doesn't mean that life is easy and simple and everything comes to us, but Jesus does promise us a peace and a contentment as we go through this life and that we will get to spend all of eternity with him in joy and love in the presence of Christ. So God actually changes when we become a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, God actually slowly over time changes us, changes our desires. So we don't even desire those old things anymore, the ways of sin. But over time, God just makes those things melt away. Verse 27, Jesus continues to speak. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And I want to just pause here for a moment to just acknowledge what Jesus is going through. He's expressing his own turmoil. He says, my soul is troubled. I'm upset. I'm not happy. He knows what is going, what what lies before him. And he's wrestling And I think we ought to just look at this and go, Jesus, he was a guy. He was a human being like you and me. And he felt things and he struggled with things. And for some of you this morning, as you're feeling upset, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling hurt, to just express those things, acknowledge those things, acknowledge the ways in which you just are are struggling and hurting and feeling pain. Sometimes I know uh, for Christians, we feel like we need to be all stoic. That we don't need to feel things. We don't need to feel struggles and heartaches. But Jesus did. He says, my soul is troubled. He's embracing his emotions. 
And you need to embrace your emotions and your feelings and those things that, that are just really getting you down and become a barrier, maybe even a barrier between you and God. God can handle it. He wants you to just cry out to him and share with him in a, in a very honest way what is going on with your life. But at the same time, notice that Jesus does not allow his emotions his feelings to dictate his behavior. It says he's led by the Spirit. Jesus says, this is how I'm feeling, but I'm not going to allow my feelings to lead me and to guide me. He doesn't want to go to the cross. But at the same time, he's like, you know what? What's more important to me is having a relationship with God. What's more important for me is to live obedient toward God, to, to look at my emotions, my feelings, to acknowledge them, but not act on them in the ways in which I am feeling. Have you ever noticed that of all the people that lie to you day in and day out, you know who lies to you the most? You do. You lie to yourself more than anyone lies to you. It's your feelings, your emotions. You experience those things. And you tell yourself, maybe I should act on those things. It's probably okay. It's probably okay for me to just act on how I'm feeling. Let my emotions, let my feelings guide me through life. But here's the deal, it's those feelings, those emotions are oftentimes lies. Those emotions are tied to your sinful nature. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says it this way, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful about all things and desperately wicked. So on the one hand, God gives us emotions and feelings as a gift, as something to experience. We ought to celebrate those things. But we never ought to allow our feelings and our emotions to be our guide because our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah. Jesus never said in the Bible, listen to your heart, be true to yourself, trust your gut, feel good about who you are, happiness is what matters, or just be a good person. He doesn't say those things. That's our culture. That's our society. You know what Jesus says? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. Our emotions, our feelings, we've got to pay attention to them. Jesus felt them, but he did not act on them. And so it needs to be a guide for us this morning as well. Save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. 
Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So yet again, as Jesus is teaching, and he's explaining to them about how he is going to die, how he's going to be lifted up, all of a sudden confusion breaks out. People are like, what in the world is going on? It doesn't make any sense to them. It's primarily a Jewish audience, and they're waiting for the Messiah. In their minds, when the Messiah comes, he will rescue the people. The Messiah is not going to die. He's not going to be lifted up to die. This makes no sense. A Messiah is a warrior king. They come in to take over and to rule and reign. So Jesus, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of Man, how in the world are you going to rule and reign? This makes no sense. And they're very, very confused. And I don't know about you, but I can, I can re- relate to this. It wasn't going to be until years later that people would actually understand what Jesus meant by the Son being lifted up on the cross. Sometimes when I uh, preach on Sunday morning, I'm, I, I'm, as I'm working on this sermon throughout the week, I think, well, I could talk about that, but I think they're going to misunderstand me. I could talk about money or tithing, but I have to tell you, um, it's not that I don't want to talk about money or tithing or giving faithfully to the church. It's just most of the time I feel like you're going to misunderstand and think, well, he just wants our money. He just wants something from us. Of course he wants us to give money. Otherwise, the church couldn't function, right? And so I, I, I worry about those things. I, I'm concerned about those things in terms of what you all think and how you might misunderstand as I'm preaching from God's Word. Now, if, if, if we're reading through Scripture and there's a passage that comes up that's relating to money and how God is calling us to live generously, we're going to go after it, we're going to attack it, and we're going to talk about it. But most days, I'm just not like, well, what should we preach about this weekend? How about money? I'm a little reluctant to talk about money, and I wonder if in your own life you ever feel like you're misunderstood. There's so much confusion as Jesus is teaching over and over and over. And I hear so much confusion even in the life of the church today. And frankly, this is one of the reasons why we're going through the entire Gospel of John, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because when I hear people or I talk to people and they share with me uh, about the Bible, they cherry-pick different verses, verses that make them feel good, verses that reinforce what they already believe. And so we're, we're just we're not doing that. We're going to look at even the hard verses, the ones that challenge us, and maybe even the ones that confuse us and we have to wrestle through. Jesus dealt with people all the time that were very confused. So Jesus told them, you're going to have to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so you may become children of the light. When he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. 
Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Again, remember, Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus. Uh, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see him with their eyes, nor understand him with their hearts, nor in turn, and I would heal them. So what Jesus is doing is what he does over and over and over. And we've talked about this week after week. He's referencing the Old Testament. And this is why we read the Old Testament. Because Jesus talks about the Old Testament all the time. Some people say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Great. Jesus referenced the Old Testament all the time. God has given us the Old Testament and the New Testament and all of it. And we cannot understand, I would argue, the New Testament if we don't understand the Old Testament. And so Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. What he's talking about is this idea of people hardening their hearts. Hardening their hearts. And he uses this example we think of this example of how Pharaoh in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, disobeyed God and disobeyed God and disobeyed God. And then we read in Exodus, so God hardened his heart. And so which is it? Did he choose to disobey God? Or did God actually harden his heart? Which is it? Did he make a choice? Or was he preordained? Was he predestined to be an evil pharaoh? Which is it? It's a good question. And I know many of you, as you're going through your daily devotional, as I was reading this past week what Chuck Swindoll has to say about this whole idea of is it predestination or is it free will? I think Chuck Swindoll does a great job. So if, if you haven't read this particular section, I'm not going to go through it all again. Most of you have this devotional, but I think Chuck Swindoll does a really great job of explaining exactly what's going on. And frankly, I'll tell you this. When I talk to many of you uh, as you're sharing with me about what's going on in your life group, this issue seems to come up over and over, right? comes up in my life group. So which is it? Do we choose to follow Jesus or have we been preordained to follow Jesus? And of course, the answer is yes. Read your daily devotional. I'm not going to go into it, but I just want to lift that up to you this morning. Real quickly, what, what Jesus is teaching about with Isaiah is this explanation of how the people will choose to be disobedient, but then God will actually confirm it in their hearts. He'll put his stamp on it and say, got it. Remember confirmation? How many of you went through confirmation class? Yeah, many of you went through confirmation class. And as you go through confirmation class, you learn about stuff, and you wrestle through things, and at the end of your confirmation class, you are invited to make a decision to put a stake in the ground and say, I believe in Jesus. And in a couple of months, Claire and Ethan are going to stand before you 
And they're going to share their faith. And they're going to put a stake in the ground, I hope. And they're going to say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus. And then what are we as a congregation going to do? We are going to confirm their faith. We are going to affirm what they have already said. See, oftentimes when we think of confirmation, we think of this idea of I believe this and and the congregation comes alongside and confirms it. I believe this and the congregation comes along and confirms it. I believe this and God comes along and confirms it. I don't know if that's how it works in my life. God confirms my faith over and over through you and through walking with him. And what's going on here, what Jesus is talking about in this quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah is the opposite. That people have made a decision in their heart to be disobedient to God and God confirms it. They turn away from God and God confirms it. They walk away from God and God says, okay, I confirm that. See, confirmation can work both ways. We can either put our trust in Jesus and then God will confirm it. Or we can walk away from Jesus and live our own ways. And God can also confirm that. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this particular text. Again, I know many of you guys are in life groups. And you guys talk about this stuff all the time. Bring your books to your life group this this next week or next month, whenever you're meeting again. Wrestle through this. Because I think Chuck Swindoll does a really good job unpacking this. I know this becomes a sticking point for so many of you. Me too. I get it. How does all this work? Verse 41. Isaiah said that Jesus is continuing to teach. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than, they, than the praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not only believes in me only, but the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who has sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes should stay in the darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this, his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So what Jesus is talking about here is, folks, we've we've talked about this week after week. There are going to be some people who hear my words, see my miracles, see my signs, and they're going to believe. And there are going to be others who hear my words, see my miracles, watch my signs, and they are not going to believe. Jesus is very clear. Some are going to believe, and some are going to reject me. So what do we do with a text like this that Jesus invites us to step into this morning? Remember President Abraham Lincoln? 
looking for a challenge. So I'm going to give you a challenge this morning. I'm going to give you three challenges. The first challenge that I see in this text is to understand and embrace our role as followers of Jesus Christ. Understand and embrace our role, who God has called us to be, in our own role. Jesus says in his first coming, did you hear that? He didn't come to judge the world. We've heard this before in John 3. I did not come into the world to judge the world. I came into the world to save the world. See, Jesus comes in, is going to come into the world yet again. The first time, he does not come into the world to judge the world. He's come into the world to save the world. This is what we know of as Jesus' life and ministry walking on this earth. He didn't come here to judge you. He came here to rescue you, to save you, to help you. But he says, I'm coming again. And in my second coming, that's when the judgment happens. So the good news is we're living in a time where Jesus has come with the message to rescue us, to help us, to save us. But to make no mistake about it, there will come a time when Jesus will judge each and every person. Jesus says, I didn't come this time around to judge you or to condemn you. And if Jesus did not come into this world to judge us or to condemn us, I think we ought to respond in the same way. Our job as Jesus followers, our role as Jesus followers, is to not point fingers and condemn others, to not tell other people what horrible people they are, what sinful people they are. Our job is not to judge or to condemn, but simply point people to Jesus in a loving way, in a Christ-like way. People you know that are not walking with Jesus, rather than point out their sin and the, their, the ways in which they are separated from God, rather than just do all those things of judging them and condemning them, we are to point them to the way of how they can escape judgment, the final judgment from their life. I think about it, the image that comes to my mind or came to my mind this week as I was preparing to share with you the image of a burning building. Folks, the world is burning. The roof is going to come crashing down. And many people, those of us, even Jesus followers, we misunderstand, we misinterpret this idea of not judging people or condemning people, so we just let them stay in the house and watch it burn down. And what Jesus is saying, I think, is our job is to say, you don't have to get burned down with this world. The roof is caving in. It's going to fall on top of you. That's what's going on in the world. The world is falling apart. The world is caving in. The fires are burning all around us. And our job is to lovingly and caringly approach those who are in the flames and say, hey, I know how you can get rescued. I know how you can get out of this burning building. If you're open... I want to show you the way. Come and see this fire rescue that I want to show you. We are invited to know and to embrace our role as people who just walk alongside and invite others to experience Jesus. 
The great evangelist Billy Graham once said it this way, God's job is to judge. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. And our job is to love. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get those things mixed up. Sometimes I can be a judge. Sometimes I think it's on me for other people to become convicted to follow Jesus. But really, my job is to love. God's job is to judge. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. My job and your job is to love. So understand and embrace our role number two. Another way that we can respond is understand and reject the ways of the world. And I think this is one of the most difficult things of being an American today. I don't know if you know this or not, but it is not easy being a disciple of Jesus Christ in America today. Not because it's a difficult place to live, but because we live in a time, in a place where we experience so much comfort and ease. Our lives are so easy. We don't hardly have to lift a finger. We don't have to be reliant on Jesus. It's so easy for us as, as a wealthy, healthy Americans to go through our lives and do what we do and just rely on ourselves. But what you also got to know is that there are people and companies, organizations that are lying to you. They're invested in you. They spend billions of dollars every single day to convince you to love this world, to buy the trinkets of this world, to experience the pleasures of this world, to live in the luxuries of this world. And whether you're looking at a screen in your living room or in your pocket, it's lying to you. And make no mistake about it, they are spending billions and billions of dollars to convince you to love this world and all that's in it. One pastor I know calls it the merry-go-round of normality. And what he really means by this is we, we encourage our young people to study really hard or just hard enough so you can get a good job. And when you get a good job, then you have a little bit of security in your life and you can buy the stuff, the new car, the house, the clothes, all that stuff. And you spend your entire life just buying stuff, accumulating stuff, consuming stuff, numbing yourself. You do this for about 40 years of your life, and you're like, eh, it's kind of lame. I mean, some of you, that, that you, you thought that house was going to bring you happiness. You thought that car was going to be it. Can I remind you, you can't even see yourself driving in that car. You don't know how cool you look in that car. And if you drive by a mirror to see yourself in your car, you got bigger issues, right? You think of all oh, those clothes, they're going to make me so happy. I guarantee you, if I were to take a picture of you today, 10 years from now and I showed you that picture, you'd be like, oh, look at those clothes. I can't believe I wore that. But today you're like, oh, those clothes, they make me look so good. And we all get on this merry-go-round of normality and we spin around and around and around. Wake up, eat something, drive something, sell something, eat something, watch something, go to bed, repeat. 
We do this over and over and over. For some of you, your greatest prayer is, thank God it's Friday. Lord, thanks for the weekend. I mean, this is kind of the American lifestyle today, even among Christians. And what Jesus, I think, is saying is we have got to reject this. We've got to reject the values of this world. And what I think he's inviting us to do is much like Abraham Lincoln, is to aspire for greatness. Understand and embrace our role as a follower of Jesus, number two, understand and reject the ways of the world, and number three, aspire to greatness for Jesus. So about 22 years ago, um, there was a conference in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the Passion Conference. And they invite tens of thousands of students from all over the country to come to Atlanta. And they gather in uh, one of their large venues. And 22 years ago at uh, the Passion Conference, a pastor, a preacher from Minneapolis, a guy by the name of John Piper, stood before these tens of thousands of people, young people, trying to figure out what to do with their lives. Oh, I'm going to college, now what? And so as he shared with them that that past week in Minneapolis, two people from their church were killed in a car accident. Their names were Laura and Ruby. They were 80-year-old women. They were missionaries serving in another country. And what they were doing is they had put together some food, some sandwiches for people who were hungry. And as they were driving their car to go feed these people, the brakes went out on the car. They drove over a cliff, and that was the end of Ruby and Laura. And then he picked up the, the, the newspaper from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And the article read, Tragedy for Laura and Ruby. He said, is that a tragedy? Really? Then John Piper picked up a Reader's Digest. And he read the story of about a couple in their 50s. They've been very successful in their business, climbing the corporate ladder, doing what they do. So they retired early. They bought a motorhome, traveled around the country, they played softball, and they collected seashells. And Dr. Piper said, that's a tragedy. Someday, each of us are going to stand before Jesus make an account for our lives. What did you do with your life? What did you do with your life? Are you going to show Jesus your seashells and go, look what I found? He's not going to be impressed. I'm just here to tell you. And Dr. Piper concluded his sermon with these words, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. A few years later, he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. If you have not read the book, Don't Waste Your Life, you need to read the book, Don't Waste Your Life. And what I love about that story and that sermon was he was standing before tens of thousands of young people who in that moment said, we're not going to waste our lives. We're not going to go through the merry-go-round of normality, climbing the corporate ladder, living for myself. We are going to live lives that are extraordinary. We are going to do something with what God has given us. And they have sacrificed and moved to different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And they were inspired. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with, I know some of you are climbing the corporate ladder. There's nothing wrong with climbing the corporate ladder. There's nothing wrong with what you've done with your life. Make lots of money. Be the boss. Those are awesome things. Do that. But don't just consume and spend it all on yourself. Ask yourself, how can I use what God has given me to bless others in the world? So this morning, I want to challenge you to don't waste your life. Don't live your life for you. Live your life for Jesus. Live your life for something that matters. Truly, truly, I say to you, I lost it here. Oh, here we go. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who lo loves this world will die. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And I think for us, what this means, and you've heard me talk about this and you've heard others. We talk about this all the time. This is why we've embraced this journey of discipleship. In my mind, what, what so many people who call themselves Christians do is that on Sunday they're like, I believe in Jesus. But on Monday they believe in themselves. On Tuesday they believe in themselves. On Wednesday they believe in themselves. That's what a Christian does. I believe in Jesus on Sundays, but live the rest of their week for themselves. A disciple, we use this language very intentionally here. A disciple on Sunday says, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to die to myself. On Monday, a disciple says, I'm going to believe in Jesus and die to myself. On Tuesday, a disciple says, I believe in Jesus I'm going to die for myself. And what this looks like in very practical terms for those of us who call ourselves disciples is that day after day we spend time in God's Word, reading His Word, studying it, wrestling through it. And we pray and spend time with God every single day, not just on Sundays, every single day of the week. That's what a disciple does. And the disciple also serves others in the community, in the world. That's why we get together in our life groups, to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. This is why it's so important that each and every one of us are part of a life group, a small group of people that we can serve and help walk through the journey of life. What you got to know, and I feel like I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again. Our goal here at Faith Lutheran Church is not to become a megachurch. Our goal is to not see how many people we can gather in this community to show up in this beautiful place and worship God. That's not our goal. If you come on Sunday mornings, we're glad you're here. We're happy you're here. But make no mistake about it. Our goal, our calling from God is to send people out into the world, 
to make disciples, to walk with Jesus, to be a disciple ourselves, and then to go out and serve others. This is why we put such, uh, so much emphasis on church planting. Because we know that we cannot uh, make Jesus known to every single person in this community. This is why we're supporting this whole church. These are folks that are investing in pouring in to college students. Most of us don't spend a lot of our time on college campuses. They do, and they will, and they're going to make disciples. And so we're like, we just want to walk alongside you and partner with you as the Salt Church just comes to life. It's about pouring out even as we bless one another. This is why we planted, helped to plant a church in Atlanta, Georgia. A remnant of God's faithful people said, we wonder if God is calling us to plant a church. And we said, yes. And so we walked alongside them for the journey and we continue to walk alongside them. This is why we've helped to plant a church in Albania. A group of people said, we wonder if God is calling us to plant a church here. We said, yes. We want to encourage you and pray with you. This is why when a group of people, a remnant of people in Decatur, Illinois, said, we've got this Bible study and people keep showing up. We wonder if God is calling us to plant a church. And we said, yes, we want to walk alongside you. See, four years ago when God gave us this vision to plant a thousand churches over the next 40 years, we're like, this is awesome. How do we do it? I don't know. None of us knew. None of us had a playbook. None of us had planted a church before other than this church. And what we've discovered over the past four years, church planting is as simple as listening to God. Listening to God, listening to how God's people are talking in the community. See where the Holy Spirit is moving and say, I want to go with them. And then going with them. A couple months ago, I was talking to uh, some folks in Washington, Illinois, they said, there is a remnant. There is a remnant of faithful Jesus followers in our community, and we are considering, we are discerning planting a church. What do you think? Yes! And we want to support you. This is what we do at Faith Lutheran Church, is we pray with people, we encourage people, we walk alongside people, and we invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to move in your midst. Count us in. They haven't even started yet. They're going to start meeting, I think, next weekend. And in, two, uh, in three weeks, July 31st, they've asked me to come over to Washington to uh, lead a worship service there, 5 o'clock, to just show up, to worship God. They've asked me to preach, preside at communion. Be, before they even gave me the date, they said, hey, can you come over? And I'm like, yeah, I will clear my calendar because it's that important. The people of Faith Lutheran Church... They're good. They take care of each other. You guys are a low-maintenance congregation. You guys love and care for one another. So you allow handfuls of us to go and to plant churches other, other places. And you just got to know, this is who we are. This is what you are doing. This is why it matters what you're doing. How do you plant a church? You listen to God. You listen to others. And you show up. So I'm going to just put it on the table. July 31st, 5 o'clock. They're meeting. They're, they call themselves the Fellowship of, at Cana, based on the miracle where, where Jesus turned water to wine. And they are trusting that God is going to do a miracle in their midst. And I believe God will. 
And it all just begins with us showing up and encouraging them and praying with them. I am not a talented church planner. Just listen and show up. And this is what I want to challenge each one of you to do. As we look at Jesus' text, to die to yourself so that others might live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who has just thrown out this impossible challenge for us to be planted, to be buried, to die to ourselves so that we might live to you, might live to your kingdom, and make disciples in communities around this community, around the world. God, this is not a one and done. We know this. This is a daily picking up of our cross, a daily dying to self, a daily acknowledgement, God, that we are in desperate need of you. We can't do anything on our own. We need you, God, to save us. And God, we need you to save this world. And so make us die to ourselves, God, every single day as we serve you and strive to do great things for you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.